This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is my dear friend, Mark Owen. And if you watched part one, you know that that took us from Mark's beginnings in a small village in Alaska up until September 11th. So in part two, here we talk about really September 11th up until the raid to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. Uh, Mark and I have known each other for over 20 years. Uh, we've been dear friends that entire time, and he hasn't given too many interviews. You might have seen his 60 Minutes interview, um, but he hasn't talked too openly about these things in the past. So you're going to hear some things that, uh, that you haven't heard anywhere else before. And uh, I was deeply honored that uh, Mark chose to sit down with me to tell this story. So Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and for trusting me with this and to everybody watching or listening out there. Enjoy the podcast. By the time my second deployment was rolling around, right? 9-11 happened, focuses on Afghanistan. They're already starting to shift focus into Iraq. Mm -hmm. And so my second deployment was to Kuwait and Kuwait up in... Uh, yeah, and when did you guys know that? Because when you talk about shifting focus uh, at that same time that those guys are on the ground in, in Tora Bora, uh, at Christmas time, Tommy Franks goes to Crawford, Texas to meet with President Bush and President Bush asks him to start drawing up plans on Iraq in December of 2001, wild. So you get back from that deployment, you get back in like February, March timeframe, 2002. Sure. Uh, and then you hop right back into, into a workup yep, right away. cycle. Um, and go through the, the full, full, did you get a full workup out of that one? Or is it? it was 12 months. Yeah, I, I think, think it was a little less because, yeah. because then Iraq kicks off. <clears throat> and, yep. uh, and did you guys, what time, when did you guys know that you were gonna go? It was back and forth, back and forth like of when, typical, where we were going, right. typical stuff. And then the last minute, they're like, okay, you're deploying to uh, Ali Asalim, Kuwait. And then, you know, the initial invasion was getting ready to go down. Team three was just doing the go plats, uh -huh. that type of thing. Um, so we flew to Kuwait and then sat there. And, and then, you know, my first real mission ever was out of Kuwait. Um, yeah, it was out of Kuwait right at the beginning. And then you guys, but you guys set up shop in Baghdad? Yeah, we did that first mission, and then everything was moving so quick on the ground in Iraq. It was, boom, they, they cleared up into Baghdad within, what, a week or so, whatever it was. Um, and so then, boom, we dropped in at the uh, at Biop, and then I spent the rest of my deployment in Biop, at Baghdad International yeah. Airport, um, you know, running Team 5 type stuff out of there. Yeah, you guys are just doing DAs out of there. Did you fly in to, to Biop at that yep. point? Yep. Yeah. So you fly in, you set up shop there. And, fly in, uh, set up shop. Got the old Humvees from Team 3 as they left. Yeah. Um, and that was it. Did the high uh, five with those guys? and Yeah, no turnover, really. It was, hey, and, and think about it. Nobody in my platoon at that point had any zero yep. combat experience. And so it was, you know, learning curve was yeah. vertical. And just figuring it out, we, you know, we're doing a decent amount of DAs for yeah. early on. Totally. Nobody ever thought we'd do that many... Period. This was all new. We didn't know really what to think, and here we were doing them semi regularly. -ish. Yeah, but at this point, you have embedded radios have come in. We now have embedders. Okay, you got never had those yeah. before, right? You, you had the Prick One Twelves. You had to put in your butt pack. Oh man, <laughs> you did have those at this one. Again, no. oh yeah, those are gone. No, but I, I remember yeah. early on was oh you had to carry a Prick One Twelve. Oh man, in your butt pack. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. yeah. So those are gone. Now we got embedders. We got body armor. Got body armor. We've got helmets. We've got some night nods, vision. yeah, we, and we've got at peels. Okay, they're not even at pec twos. Pec twos, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you got that stuff. Yeah, so we've evolved good. a ton in a couple of years. Yeah, boom, exactly. That quick. Now we're essentially, essentially a year and a half at night with body armor. Okay, check. There you go. And then your gun trucks are they armored at this point? Or are no, they... no. I remember. I mean, thin skin. Uh -huh. I went to the biop, cut a whole bunch of like metal off old. Whole shit they had laying around the airport. We we built running boards on the side of the Humvees, so you could literally hang on the outside of it, SWAT team style. Yeah. And roll up to the front of the house. And yeah. Because ID threat. So stupid in hindsight. Yeah. Well, I mean, the ID threat didn't hit. It hadn't picked up yet. Too heavy until I mean, it really picked up steam. I, I want to say obviously 2004, 2005, 2006, but um, yeah, I think 
2004 when you start really start seeing them. Right as we were leaving our deployment was in in Iraq, the the IED threat was going up. Yeah. Um, and then by all my other future deployments back to Iraq or or even Afghanistan, yeah, mostly Iraq was all helo based assaults at that point. Damn, that's wild. And where are you getting your intel? Like you're in there for the first. This is really. You hadn't been, nobody in your platoon had been to Afghanistan, um, and this is the first time, really, that you guys are doing sustained combat operations uh, since Vietnam, uh, because really a lot of those lessons from Afghanistan hadn't filtered yep. to regular teams yet, hadn't been passed along, we hadn't figured out We didn't out have our integrated intel teams, we didn't There's have nothing. any You're there on the ground, and how, how are they expecting you to go prosecute targets? Like, a how are you figuring out? The agency was coming down, and they'd hit us, give us targets, and then we'd, we were the action arm for the agency. And they're giving you targets based off uh, strategic level intelligence that they're like, are you get are you getting, you're not getting jaywalkers at this point though. Yeah, you're getting, I don't know. See, you yeah. don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah. I'm an E5 on my first deployment in Iraq yeah. and, and some agency folks come and say, okay, bad guy lives here. I got a source. Like, okay. I'm not as worried about where he's getting his intel. That's what yeah, he yeah. does part of the team. My job is to do this. And so... It, it, I was more worried at that time of like, okay, what's my what's my job to do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's got his job. He's doing his piece. I'm doing my piece, and we'll go do these together. Right. Um, were they all the you know the the deck of cards and the high up? No, because that's what all the tier one guys were doing, yeah, and yeah. we were team five at that time, and so we're getting the you know the lower stack of the cards if we could find a, somebody on the deck. Yeah. Otherwise, it was right chase the facilitator to get to the yeah the boss. Interesting. So you're, and uh, do you have an intel guy that's like working with the agency that's putting all these packages together or anything like Not that? that you're, just getting, you're just getting, you're just actually getting handed. And, so yep. interesting. Cause like, I remember about a year later, we really started thinking about generating our own intel, right. ground level intel, tactical level intelligence, uh, running our own sources, that sort of thing, and not relying on. I on think the too, nobody was sharing a lot of stuff early on either. I mean, that's, I saw a huge change through my career of just the interagency sharing of yeah. intel. Right, we probably created our own intel services back then, is because we weren't getting fed anything from yeah. anybody else, yeah. and if we were being fed stuff, it was just what they wanted us to know. Yeah, and, and that's not a good partnership, right? Yeah, no, and it's uh, it's interesting when you go back and then read those Vietnam books that we were talking about earlier, but read it through the eye, with the eye of this experience over the last twenty years, you can see that they did similar things in Vietnam, like they were they were running sources and they were figuring out these these ambush points and all the rest of it like they were dragging people back and interrogating them and then going out again based off what their own intel that they were generating at that right. tactical level they weren't waiting for the for the agency and so we saw it quick kinda, return yeah and we saw that kind of morph again after september 11th after the first year two year three year then okay now we realize hey we got to start generating this stuff really on our own like what's the job of the agency what's the job of us here at the tactical level and it wasn't just us it was like the marines do a very good job at that with their uh, uh human exploitation teams or whatever they those guys are called i think like, that was the biggest eye opener for me when i went to um right my previous command a little yeah. more of a big league type setup with the right support and the right funding and the right infrastructure. And so, yeah, what we found out really quick is if you have all those pieces to the team, you, you can action these targets that much quicker. And if yeah. time is of the essence, right? If we're slow, we're, yeah. we're losing this. So we have to be quick and be self-sustained. So. Yeah, that was amazing. That's your first firefight over there, essentially. Yeah, like, team like, five, first time getting shot at, first every, first everything, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, big learning curve. We're, we're lucky we didn't get... Hurt. Yeah. We're lucky. I mean, our first mission flying helicopters to the X, like literally to the X over a dam. We clear the thing. Thank baby Jesus, nobody was there. Yeah. But the next morning, the sun comes up and there's like literally AAA uh, positions okay. all the way around the dam. Yeah. Multiple positions. A teenage girl, <laughs> you know, running the AAA could have shot us down in a CH-53 yeah. fast roping onto the X, like yeah. 50 yards from their gun emplacement. Yeah, and course. we had no idea the gun emplacements were there. And that was the plan, fly to the X. Yeah. Well, that's just like you would in training. Just like yeah. you would uh, yeah, at Fort Polk, Louisiana. You know, yeah. how we're going in. So you know, we've always it. done. This is yeah. how we do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is stupid. We need to figure out a new way to do this. Interesting. So what are your biggest, when you came back from that one, what were the... The biggest lessons from that deployment, um, whether they're like you know TTPs or gear-wise, what did you bring back from that? Dude, a ton because we started off at zero, yeah. right? We had all this new gear before we deployed, so now you're using night vision and lasers and under understanding really what those capabilities can bring to the fight, especially yeah. if you're fighting people without without that capability. Right. Um, so I think technology-wise, that was an eye opener from just that aspect. Mm -hmm. 
um, doing a couple real missions now, right? Before it was all training and make it up in your head and these big elaborate E&E plans and all that went out the window. And right, things just started getting a little simpler because yeah. we were planning for a real mission, not okay. a hypothetical. Yeah. And so I think we got cleaner at our mission planning. And I mean, at that point, I had, I had screened prior to that second deployment. So I was, I was you already picked there. up and you knew you were going. Well, East I was Coast. fingers crossed on okay. that deployment, waiting to get the word if I was picked up to, to go out East. Yeah. And, uh, and I got, I got good news towards the end of that deployment. So as soon as we came back from that deployment, I was, I had six months till class started. So they put me over at group one. I worked I like R and D for six months, all the gear stuff. I remember. Which was great. Cause I yeah. just came off that deployment using all this new gear and was yeah. able to spend a handful of months helping group one. And then, and then I moved East. Yeah. And it was, uh, gosh, so you were there in January of 2000 was it be 2004 like when did you call me from vegas and say i'm at shot show come out here fly out here right now was this when i was already at the command nope nope it was team, 2003 it then. was team five 2003. 2003 and uh so i'm new that's right because i'm new at at uh, seal team two i went to went to ocs and you know learned how to fold those clothes again and uh and now now i'm an officer at, at and you call me at night like you call me at like it's six at night or something. And uh, you're like, you gotta get out here. And so I'm like, okay. And then I called my ops boss at the time. I'm like, hey, I wanna go to this thing called SHOT Show in, in Vegas, uh, is that cool? And he was like, yeah. And yeah. uh, never say that awesome guy. And he's, I think he's still in. Um, and I was already learning a ton ton from him. And uh, he's like, yeah, go, go check it out. I'm like, Roger that. So I think I flew out that night. Pretty sure you did. I wanna say I flew out that night. And with the time change, I got, there was a direct, flight and I got there and met you at some party with for like HK and I was like what on earth is going on here like it's some you're at the top of some I don't know top like of the hotel, something. there's HK weapons everywhere you know and then like back then it really really was semi undiscovered for uh for team guys like it wasn't what it became um but it was so cool to get in there and to see all that stuff and back then i'm sure you remember that uh tactical section was like probably not as big as this room right. that we're in right now and that was the tactical section of shots where everything else was cabela's and you know shooting you hunting know? outdoor trade yep, show yep. Not tactical. it was yeah it was fishing stuff it was bass you know, all that yeah. sort of thing. Um, and of course we hung out around all the, the tactical stuff and we're, you know, looking at all these, uh, you know, whatever the latest and greatest that was. That was like the first time I realized we could go to these shows and literally sit down with people like HK or mm -hmm. EOTech or Aimpoint and literally with, with their designers and, and, and say, hey, this is what we're experiencing, you know, and, and have back and forth. Yeah. And I'm, you know this guy very well, uh, he's in my book. Short yeah. and very hairy. Yes. He uh big just do shot show a lot together, yeah. right? We go to this this meeting one one year and it's with EOTech. Right? Yeah. It's all their engineers and their like head people and and it's at the time when in the EOTechs, right, the batteries mm -hmm. face forward back. Yeah. So we're sitting there in this meeting and and our mutual friends like, Yeah, I, I got I got something for y'all. Right. He's probably still drunk from the night before, I don't know, but he's he's like uh how come you guys never turn the battery sideways? You smaller ones. <laughs> right? and, yeah. and all the engineers were like under the table writing yeah, yeah. down the notes. And that's what like, they did. Oh, great idea. Yeah. Next year we show up at SHOT Show. There's a 100-foot banner of the new EOTech optic with the site or the, yeah. the batteries turn 90 degrees and right. use a smaller battery. You're welcome. Uh -huh. So, yeah. Yeah, that was great. That was awesome. And it grew into that when you guys were, were there. And I would go back every year and meet you there. And it was like our, our thing that we always did. And I only missed them if I was on deployment. Yeah. But, uh, but that first one was cool because it was just us. Yeah. And like maybe there was some guy who wasn't really a gear guy from some command. Maybe it wasn't even a SEAL that like yeah. was out there that didn't really care, didn't know what he was doing. Um, but for guys like us, like that, that cared and were already tweaking our gear on our own, like in our garages or, you know, going finding the guy that knew right. how to sew to do whatever. Like it was very eye-opening to see that. And then I remember we met that guy from Surefire and then he sent me this huge box of Surefire stuff, which today would 
be, you know, it's probably in their, one's in their museum and it's probably like a yellow type of a, you know. But anyway, back then it was some of the, the newest stuff. I don't think the Scout had come out at that point no, yet. I, it was yeah, pre-scout. Yeah. Pre-scout. Pre-scout. Um, but sent a huge box and I gave it, of course, to the platoon, you know, yeah. and everybody's like, what is this? And you're handing stuff out. And uh, and that was that was cool because, you know, you're still getting issued like a mag light, you know, I think, yeah. at the team. And think about it, as gear guys, right, we're the nerds. We're into this stuff. Now we have access to go to the shows, actually talk with the manufacturers, and they would be responsive, mm -hmm. put in additional tweaks, and then this is gear we're using on the next rotation. Mm -hmm. So this is gear that we're literally designing, using, implementing in a very short timeline, yep. and this is gear that's you know saving lives. So yep. I, I, I enjoyed that. Oh yeah. I thought that was great. That was super fun. And that was great to go out that first time and then to see what it grew into. One, one that tactical section, but then two, like how many more team guys would come, give their input, yeah, some, Maybe just had a great time, which is fun, which is wonderful. Um, but it was like a reunion. Like yeah. it was so fun during those during the peak years before yeah. it got you know before things got shut down. Essentially, too much fun, I guess, out there. But it wasn't only fun. Like it, you you got to see why I wanted to go all those years after you introduced me to it was because I wanted my guys to have the the latest and greatest. Anything yeah. that was gonna if it help can us save down your life. Range. Why wouldn't you put the time and effort into making sure mm -hmm. it was the best possible piece of equipment you could have? Yeah. to save your life or somebody else's. That's a no-brainer. Yep. And even well before that, you know, I was doing different holsters because there were guys especially more focused on law enforcement at the time on the, the CQC, sure. CQB side of the house back in the late 90s. Um, and so I was always tweaking that gear, looking at what was out there. Uh, you know, the new new Kydex, whatever came out, I would get it and sure. try it out, but I'd pay for it. You know, I was always, because that was just part of it for me. I love doing that. Um, but being able to go to SHOT Show and do that, I think it was hugely beneficial for, <laughs> obviously for those companies, but, uh, you know, also for us downrange sure. and you weren't just getting yeah, it was handed win, it was something win, win. by supply. Yeah, it was definitely a win-win. Mm -hmm. a, a um, it'll be interesting to see over these next 10 years, 20 years, how things evolve um, based on, you know, what we're going to do. Or if it's going to be like Vietnam, like when we got to Team 5, we got issued Vietnam era stuff. Yeah. You know, because it was pre-September 11th, and that was the last time we were in sustained combat operations. And so I wonder if it'll be the same for guys 10, 20 years from now. Are they going to get kind of what stops now? I don't know. I think it'll probably evolve a little bit more. I mean, your kit sitting here, right? I was helped design a lot. I think Look I gave that. that to I you. Know, that's why I got like, it. I that, there's still people rocking that, and that's from 10, 15 years ago. Yep. So yep. I don't know. I remember you gave this to me in 2000 and. Uh, Eight, I want to say, <laughs> and nobody in the at the team had seen anything like this before. And uh, of course, you you had it, so you've got it all set up. You know, we got it all set up like that with this stuff. And uh, I love this thing. I love this 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 setup. That's why I still still have it. It's still my still my go-to to this day. Uh, the tourniquet fell off a little while ago because the rubber bands got all you know. But it's more like a museum piece now, more like memories and everything. But um, but you got to tweak all that stuff because yep. you go because then you go. To your new command, and you go to this thing called Green Team, and you are under the gun for six months. That was the longest break in my entire military career. When you were at uh, nine months one. of selection and training, if, yeah. if you can call that a break. Yeah. But yeah, longest, longest period not deploying. Yeah. So nine months, you go through that. That's a major. But that's stress. That's yeah, a lot of stress. Yeah, that's a. If if buds was stressful. Here's the way I'll compare them, right? Buds was the kick in the nuts every single day. Yeah. Just wanting to get you to quit, right? Run that way as fast as you can. Okay, check, I'll run that way. Do push-ups, don't quit, do push-ups. Selection and training was more about, okay, um, perform this tactic at this level, mm -hmm. and if you are not meeting that level, you're gone. And, and so it was tactically more stressful than just don't quit, right? Nobody's quitting right. selection and training at this point. You're all vetted before you get there. Yeah. Um, so nobody's quitting, but the the stress level, I think, and the stress level you put on yourself is greater than anything, right? Because here I am volunteering for this new program. I don't want to fail out of it. So the just the, the internal stress you put on yourself makes it yeah, a, a lot. and you've been thinking about it, you know, you've been thinking about it for so long, and now it's here, and now you're in the middle of it. And of course, we're neighbors at the time. We're in Virginia Beach. I'm a team two. You're going through uh, selection and training, and uh, you know, we get to we get to hang out on the, on the weekends, we're on a trip or, or whatever else. But uh, that was crazy. I mean, that was a. I mean, and and the war's going on, so guys are coming back from that to be instructors that now have serious experience yeah. in that are your part of your cadre, um, and uh, it's not just based off. You know. What was cool, I think, at that 
for me, right, going through buds, when we went through, there was nothing going on. It was training for the hypothetical, for the what if, for all mm -hmm. the stuff we read about in the books. Yeah. Now we've done it. Now I'm going through selection and training. Everything's going gangbusters at this time. And if anything, everything's still spinning up. Yeah. And, and so I, I knew without a shadow of a doubt, as we finished up, you know, our selection and training, there were there was a group going to the squadron that was deployed already. So they were graduating green team and flying over. Boom. So awesome. So that is awesome. So you knew where you know we were gonna be busy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how did uh, how did the CQC part of all all that training go for you? Great. I mean, I love that stuff. That's my. I, I like it. I like yeah. angles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the uh, the I like gun the, was always I like your... the chaos. I like the I like all of that. Uh -huh. So for me, um, right? There's only so good you can get at a team five level where mm -hmm. where every year you have a set of new guys coming in, mm -hmm. right? And that's just the name of the game. You always got to stock it with new guys. They're younger uh, seals across mm -hmm. the board, and so every year you bring in new guys, and so you've got to make sure the training can meet those new guys level yeah. without blowing them out of the water. So it gets really hard to take this group and make them ninjas yeah. if they're constantly having high turnover and bringing yeah. in people with no experience. So I think once you got to my previous command, now everybody, your newest guy yeah. has a decent amount of experience. Your senior guys have ridiculous levels. Yeah. And so it really allows you to like, take all the you know command and control out of it and just let the guys eat. Yeah, right. And I liked that aspect of it. It was less of the hall boss, two guys here, right, two right. guys there. It was, you know, hey, let it eat, fellas. And Amazing. it was up to the guys. Yeah. So that was that was much more my speed. So awesome. What was the hardest part of those nine months for you? Um, just the constant mental stress of being like, man, yeah. I, I really want to make it through this program. And there were guys getting weeded out all the way till the, the final weeks. What was it like walking in then to find out the squadron you're going to, and then to walk in to that place with guys at this point who have some serious experience, um, from the, the previous three, four, you know, five years at this point. Um, yeah. what was it like to walk in there? I mean, everything I dreamt about, I was like, that's I, I felt that, right? I read all the books, like, okay, what's it going to feel like when I check into the second deck? And it was a big deal, right? You finished training. Like, wow, okay, I made it. I'm still on probation for another year. But, hey, they're busy, right? A lot of my green team instructors are now going back to the squadron and are going to be team leaders in the squadron. Um, and we were going to work, so... It was check in, and we did three months of training, and then deployed. And did they make you a the gear rep or, or right off the bat, or what were you right off the pretty bat? Pretty quick, pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> they realized that uh, that you had an eye for this sort of thing. Right, whether they assigned me to gear or not, or I just, just morphed and helped. You know, that was my thing. So I just got very involved there. So, right, I was a point man for my team, and then you know, kind of the supply R and D research and development rep. And yeah. So yeah, that's where it all kind of started. That's amazing. It was, it was, and for me, it worked out very well too to have you in that <laughs> in that position, uh, because then then I got a couple of hand me downs. I guess is the best way to to say it. Uh, so my rifle, my kit was always like next level. Well, at the and team. think about how much the gear was evolving. Period yeah, across yeah. all of NSW mm -hmm. at that time, right? We just talked about Team Five. We got mm -hmm. lasers and night vision and all body armor, and then the evolution of gear and everything was just. Oh yeah, vertical for yep. the next ten years, and so especially at my mm -hmm. my last command, right? We had the ability to design stuff, you know, customize it, you name it, and so friends, friends of mine were that was awesome. well taken care of. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Do you remember the uh, remember the dock sites when those uh, when those came out? I think it was right before you got there and like my core group from SEAL Team 5, when I went to OCS, they went to their green team and uh, you know, as they got out of there, I'm now finished with OCS, so they're getting to their squadrons around the same time I'm getting to SEAL Team 2. And uh, and so I got like the dock site, which is, you know, uh, a reflex site you could mount uh, either on the side of your rifle or you could put it on a little, another mount on top of your ACOG right, right. at the time, uh, which is pretty cool when you had a, a like a gas mask on because it put you like, Sure. right there and you had a red dot um but people were like what is this thing you know like what is this merging of worlds of competitive shooting and tactical shooting and what we're learning from downrange and what we need and technology's moving and we're always trying to exploit all our technical and tactical advantages as we do all this and the enemy's adapting at the same time so it was a crazy time to to 
be in, I think, especially when you're studying the enemy, you're studying gear, you're studying tactics, and now the responsibility isn't just because you can have a cool new piece of kit to do something more effectively or efficiently, it's no, to adapt faster than the enemy, to outthink the enemy, to do something that's gonna give you that edge when your brothers to your right and left are depending on some of that information sure. and some of those tactics to come home safely. And our whole life was that cycle, right? There was no free time, there was mm -hmm. no very little vacation time, if any. Mm -hmm. So, right, my whole world was around deploying. Yeah. So what helped you on deployment? Gear, equipment, tactics, you name it. So that was live, eat, sleep. Yep. Oh, that was awesome. I loved having that. Uh, and I had done a little work with your previous uh, command just to get a little experience from SEAL Team 2. Uh, so I got to have my eyes opened uh, to what was going on over there. And then then you make it through and you get to your squadron and I'm getting these hand-me-downs. And, and at that point, a lot of the people from your previous command had, for whatever reason, come back maybe to the SEAL teams, whether they got in trouble for something or whatever it was. Uh, you know, they, we had a, a solid group of chiefs and senior chiefs at, uh, at SEAL Team 2 that came from your previous command. And that was really incredible to be able to work with those guys, have them pass on lessons. They still had, you know, connections, obviously, at your previous command as well. So for whatever reason during that time, like some doors opened um, between the regular teams and where you were. And there was a lot more, there was a lot of sharing that hadn't yeah. happened in the past. I don't know what it's like today, of course, but um, there was a lot of sharing that took place. Well, I think then. all that hit about the same time, mm -hmm. right? Whether it was Intel sharing with different agencies and other DOD units, et cetera, it was sharing stuff with other teams, right? Yeah. We created new gear, tactics, whatever, at, Mm -hmm. development group, oh, yeah. right? Then you're able to develop those things and pass them down. And so, right, the mass, the mass uh, was the dry suits. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was something we had at our command for years. Yep. And then it, those things were great. Yeah, I still have mine. Yeah. I mean, maybe I, no, maybe I turned Turn it in. Turn that in. Yeah, yeah. Turn that in. Uh, <laughs> but there was, yeah, there's a lot more of that. And I remember uh, before we had Blue Force trackers that we eventually became, you know, fairly prevalent, um, I got to go back over and uh, to your command and talk with the mobility guys over there and were buying stuff off the shelf and showing me how they were tracking and how it was this, you know, separate network thing. It was like, so much sharing and it was so so cool uh to have that that back and forth and certainly helped us when we got ready to go to to iraq with uh with seal team two um but you're there for three so you're three months and then you're out the door three months i'm on my first deployment with that command and is that was that iraq the first one or where did you go that was iraq um but halfway through that deployment um or no correction i went to afghanistan first about a three weeks a month into that deployment i I switched with a handful of guys. We moved over to Iraq okay. and embedded with the the Army, our peer group, Army squadrons. Yeah. And uh, I worked with them through that deployment. They had taken some casualties and needed some extra bodies. And so our, our squadron, our Navy squadron, sent a, a team, two teams of guys over to embed with their squadron. And that, that's really telling because, you know, that's a time in the in the war where people talk about, even at the time they talked about Afghanistan is going to play in second fiddle to Iraq. And, uh, you know, it, it happened, you know, I saw it personally by going to Afghanistan with, uh, uh, when I when I got to team, team two and then my next three, Iraq, you yeah. know, that focus well, really was. Think about it. You said the number of troops we had in Afghanistan early on, right? It mm -hmm. took very few. So I think that may, I'm armchair quarterback in this, but maybe they read into that and thought, hey, we 2,500 troops, 5,000 troops, whatever we've got in Afghanistan at this time, it's a very small footprint. I Iraq was triple that and much more of a standing army, et cetera. Yeah. So the, the risk they thought, hey, we'd shift to Iraq and, and put a lot more effort into that. You know, what, yeah. what was the mission in Afghanistan? There we go. About That's the question, a, isn't about it? About a year and a half after getting there, I would maybe even six months after getting there. Do you know what the mission was? I, I think yeah. there was a good chunk of time there that nobody really knew yeah. what the end game was. Yeah, and at the tactical level, you're like, okay, roger that. We're going to go out and we're going to hit these targets and, sure. and do our thing. But then if you take a breath, even, you know, if that's your your job, if let's say if you're, the e, if you're an E4 Marine and you're clearing some province somewhere, um, you can still ask that question like, what are we doing here? Is this now the, the war on opium? Uh, and why are we, what's, what, who, are these, are these Taliban? Are they like uh, terrorists? Dirt or farmers. are they, uh, yeah, are they a farmer that is, just wants to make some money here? That we're, like there's, 
Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You're, we you're flooded around. Targets that are growing poppy to pay for their family, but it's the highest grossing crop that they can grow, right? They're not. Oh, it's a perfect yeah, climate it's, for it's, it. It's a big mess. Perfect climate for it. Nothing we did to eradicate really helped, but. Uh, and the focus shifted to Iraq. Focus shifted to Iraq. And the number of troops won, uh, the, who they sent there. Um, and then when it started to go downhill, they grab you from Afghanistan and they throw you in there with your army counterparts yep. uh, just to keep hitting. From an experience standpoint, phenomenal. Yeah. Right? Old school rivalry. Yeah. Old school, right? And I saw that growing up in the teams, right? The old guys would always talk smack about everybody else. At this point in the game, everybody's working together. Yeah. Everybody's doing the same thing, uh -huh. right? We may be Army, Army, Navy, whatever. Does not matter. Uh, phenomenal experience. I still keep in touch with a lot of the guys that I worked with there. I learned a ton from mm -hmm. them. They accepted me in with, with open arms, and, and it was th – there was none of that. That's awesome. Other than – a group of guys working together. And are you so. Baghdad or are you Ramadi? Where are you at this point? Baghdad. You're Baghdad. Baghdad. So we are the little bird team doing nice. one, two hits a night for That's legit. two, three months in a row. That's amazing. And did you? Did they have some other stuff that you didn't, uh, like the gear sharing and the tactic sharing and all that sort of things? I remember you brought, it wasn't that one, it was the next time. Because when you get back from this deployment, then you actually go down there, right? Is that when you actually go? Yeah, I'd never even been to their unit. To their, to compound their command. And do yet. some stuff. And, yep. and, uh, and then you deploy with them again, right? Nope, I never did. Oh, just that was once. the one. Just okay. the once. Okay. But flew back from deployment with them on their bird, right? Flew into, you know, Bragg. Uh, my aircraft picks me up. And I mean, just. You can't say enough good things about these yeah. guys. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, that's amazing. Um, I've a lot of great friends that were in that that unit, and uh, yeah, nothing but great things about both of you know both of you guys. Obviously, uh, do you remember the shirts back then? Because it was still, I forget if we we're all tan or tri, whatever it was. Remember Paraclete? Oh yeah. I don't know if they're still around or not, but uh, I remember you brought me back a uh, a Paraclete shirt. And I was like, oh, man, this thing's awesome. <laughs> you know, it was before the cry started. Right, it was before right. cry came in and we started, yep. you know, getting those. And, of course, I got the cry set up before anybody, which was awesome. Of course. Thank you very much. And you got the, the uh, solid tans, got too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had the full-on setup, which was amazing. Um, had the tans, had the whole thing. But I remember the paraclete, like I was, that's what I wore all through Ramadi. And, okay. uh, and I'm so angry to this day because... Um, uh, I had all the gear that had to come when I got out, had to come to our garage and it wouldn't fit. So in the backyard and then uh, I couldn't leave it out there. So I moved it to a friend's garage, which was just a couple blocks over. And of course life got busy. I get out, like all these things start happening. I'm writing, I'm doing all this stuff. And we move here to Park City and he gets a divorce. He, the stuff goes to the wife's new house and Oof. guess what? It's all gone. Yeah. So my paraclete shirt is in with that gear. <laughs> it needed to be gone. retired. Oh, I'm so mad. Uh, because I think it was legit. I wore it all through Ramadi. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that was about the time when it became cool. It was too hot, right? We Instead of wearing the cami tops, right? That about the same cry was coming out. They had the wick away stuff. We cut the sleeves off. Yeah. But it was, hey, just do a T-shirt and put some Velcro on the sleeves. Yep. Yeah, they were just cool. I remember they had a thing you could flip up the collar and had a little Velcro across here for the rubbing or whatever. Anyway, it was it was awesome. And they had some uh, stuff for aircraft, I think, to uh, – it was – yeah, that was really cool. I remember those guys. I wonder if they're – I don't even know if they're still around, but um, hopefully they are. It was a, I think it was a solid group of oh, – no, I think it was SF guys that started it or something yeah. like that. But um, So you do that. You come back. You're back at the command and going Turn, into another – Turning and burning at that point, right? You come back. You do your schools. Do standby. Deploy again. And And – that's every six months you're deploying. So it's mm -hmm. a quick turn, right? It's not like Team 5 where you're waiting a year to 18 months between deployments. It's it's six months, and of those six months, you've already been gone four of them anyway, training, mm -hmm. whatever. So it's – I mean, I loved it. It was living the dream. I'm a, I'm a new guy at the command. You know, the least amount of responsibility of anybody yeah. is the new guy. Carry the heavy shit and – Make sure you're on time and know your department type stuff. Yeah. And then just uh, loved it because at that command, it was it was not a lot of micromanagement. It was, hey, r r run with whatever you want to run with. Just be an asset. So any lane that I was interested in, I would run down. And, and then it was just continually deploying. And, I mean, that probably the next five years went, went by in yeah. 10 minutes. Just yeah, blink of an eye, yeah. man. And from those early ones, what do you? Uh, what are some of your main takeaways when now you're going in and you're you're hitting these targets? We go from 
you know, dropping right in on the X to maybe doing some offset type stuff. You're out thinking the enemy or you know, they're adapting to you. Um, what are you coming back with from these deployments? I think the one thing I've, I learned then and I still apply it to this day is, is just evolve, always evolve, never be, and I've heard you say it, right? Never get, uh, uh, comfortable in your fighting position, right? Yeah. Always find a better, always improve your fighting position, always improve yep. your fighting position. So, That's it. um, yeah. Just figuring it all out, volunteering for as much as I could, and uh, dude, I loved it. There was yeah. no, nothing negative about it, but the we were always evolving, right? So little birds to the to the roof don't work in Afghanistan. So new tactics there, right? Helos to the X doesn't work. So it was always trying to figure out some new way of uh, getting in front of the enemy. Yeah. And you're seeing now guys are getting wounded, guys are getting killed um, from yeah. your squadron, from other squadrons. Um, we're in the we're in the mix, and yeah, I think at this point that's when you really start losing a lot of friends and a lot more. It was, it was. I mean, I've said it before. I got 41 dead contacts in the contact list of my cell phone. Mm -hmm. um, and I know the teams have lost way more than that. Those are just guys that I knew yeah. and was lucky enough to have their their number. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, with that fast-paced operational, right, the, the, the risks were there. Risks were probably ar arguably only going up. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, every night there was a new close call or every night there was somebody getting hurt or killed or whatever. And, you're, and are most of these now uh, going back to Afghanistan or did you go to Iraq a couple of times in there as well? Iraq, I was balanced. Okay, pretty, both pretty back, back and forth. forth. Back and forth, back and forth. Some of the Afghanistan rotations were a little different. Work some of the outstation stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a little less of the di direct action, but you was you, one other SEAL, and a handful of locals. It's a little different mission set, different stuff to do. Uh -huh. You were a very junior, middle of the road enlisted guy, and now you're the ground force commander acting as a as an officer should, running the radios. Kind of, you're the one stop shop. And yeah. So that was that was cool to be exposed to kind of some of those positions. Um, when you were out there, did you want to be with the squadron doing of course. DAs? Of course. <laughs> you always want to be with your buddies, yeah. you know, laying the smack down. Yeah. Um, not that you couldn't do that with these other yeah. other deployments, but it was it was just different. Yeah. And at one point in there, you go, uh, is it, I don't know if it's earlier on, right in the middle of this crazy process where uh, you go to Pakistan, you go to Islamabad, right, with uh, with. Yeah, and uh, you guys are you guys are there because uh, was this the man in the flowing robes? Yeah, okay. uh, this was the first you know big spin for the man himself. Mm -hmm. um, two thousand seven ish is this two thousand seven eight yeah, somewhere in there? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was that whole thing was just a mess because I, I think they just kept delaying it and delaying it based off this intel that who knows even how accurate it was, but it became this like hey, this is the first closest. Intel chance that we've got the man. And so I think everybody wanted to be involved in it. So it grew and grew and grew to epic proportions. There was gonna be this big assault into the mountains and and like two days before the mission, Master Chief comes and grabs me and says, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna send you guys across the border to do some different stuff. Um, so yeah. Coordinate with our allies on the other side of the border. Yeah, allies, keyword. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and uh, what did you take away from that? Like, one, do you looking back now uh, with hindsight and everything else that's that's come out since then? And uh, do you think that that was a legit spin up, and that we just messed it all up because so many people wanted to get involved and it got, got too crazy, or was it uh, uh, red herring? What, or was it hey, just some you know intel that wasn't quite uh, you know quite right, and we spun on it? And I don't know. Yeah. I, um, I think. I think intelligence people sometimes can see things they want to see, mm -hmm. right? And I've had some phenomenal intel folks and some horrible intel folks. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think they were maybe reading into it, wanting to see more than they were seeing, hoping that it was lining up because this was the closest they'd had. Right. Um, and so because of that, everybody got overly excited and it became this big thing and we bombed the shit out of some empty mountains. Yeah. Our, our guys inserted, right, uh, into the mountains, right? The, there was the uh, bin Laden DNA specialist mm. who now all of a sudden mandated, comes down from above this female who's never been to Afghanistan before, but she's the bin Laden DNA specialist. She has to insert with the ground assault package into the mountains. Wow. 
It's like this stuff's coming down from above, all the good idea fairies. Everybody's throwing extra people on the chalk loads. And I wasn't even a part of this. I was in Pakistan. But when they inserted at like 11, 12,000 feet, the story I got from my buddies was she immediately came down with altitude sickness, spent the next three days on the mountain throwing up. They carried her bags around. There was no bad guy seen. There was no gunfights. There was no anything. Three days later, she got medevaced and they all came home. And was one of the lessons learned from there is, hey, show us what is in this case and teach us how to do it if we need to do the DNA stuff? We, we had said that many times before, <laughs> but I think that's right. The good idea fairy doesn't listen to logic. Yeah. And, um, and it's really hard to affect that, that yeah. space sometimes from our level. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest lesson learned from that was, hey, this turned into a clown show immediately because of how big it was and everybody in the world knew what was going on. So there was no keeping it quiet. And I think when, when the next right, the, the next spin happened, it was kept much more on the down low, much more quiet, small group. And, yeah, that's wild. And uh, at some point in there also, you spin up for uh, Bergdahl yep. in there somewhere. Was it multiple spins for him or just like? No, oh, just one. Um, Brad, he's the guy who walked off the base. Um, full moon. A uh, long flight time to the target area that we thought he was in. Uh, we didn't have much cycle of darkness left. Uh, and as you know, right, we don't like to op when it's full moon, right? It's too, it's too bright out, too much risk to the flying school bus that we're going to land on. Uh, we don't even have a, a specific area where we think, a specific compound where we think he is. He's just in this area. Lots it, of compounds in there. Uh-huh. Not really the best way to in, you know, action a hostage rescue target. Um, but it's an American citizen. At this point, we the, the reasons why he left the base were still a little bit up in the air. So, okay, okay we're willing to take the risk to go find this American yeah. and, and help him. Right. Um, we landed, as soon as we landed, PKM fire right into, the, into the helos. Um, big running gunfight in all different directions. Um, that was the night my, my team leader was shot, uh, although I've been accused of shooting him so I could take the team. That's not true. <laughs> um, the, uh, no, that was the night Jimmy was shot. Um, dog was killed. Uh, didn't get Bo. We got intel reporting that, that he was in the area, was close by. Mm-hmm. He, he might have been in the area somewhere close, but we, we ultimately missed him. Uh, dealt, dealt with a handful of bad guys. Um, but yeah, that was the... That was the Bo Bergdahl experience. So you guys land, immediately contact. Immediately contact. And is it assault through at this point? Or like, what are you, like you have multiple two, compounds? That two you're... helos landing, kind of in an L. Um, and gunfire at both helos as we land. Um, people squirting out of targets all over the place. So it uh, wasn't really a basin maneuver type assault one building. It was very much freestyle, hey, you and two dudes go chase that group. You and three go here, here, split off. Uh, not really assaulting buildings. Um, yeah, I remember that night, the guy uh, had a 40 mic mic, like literally one in a million 40 mic mic shot uh, into the doorway of a building where they were taking some PKM fire into the helo as they exited. No and had like a running diving shot with his 40 mic mic and it dropped right in the door. Nice. And, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't see those shots too often. That's amazing. But yeah, that was what I remember that night. Nice. And, and as you're moving through, when does, uh, when does Jimmy get hit? Was it like in the middle or right off the bat? Towards the end. Yeah. Um, we had a, a probably four or five bad guys-ish split up. So I had me, another assaulter, and an EOD guy. We went after two behind a, behind a hay bale. Jimmy and the dog handler. The dog and another seal, another sniper, I think we're off to our right flank, a couple hundred yards. And as they were closing in on their guy, that's when Jimmy got zipped. Um, it's when we, we dealt with the guys behind the, behind the hay bale, right? Uh, I set my sniper out to the left. The EOD guy's off to the right, kind of flank, looking around this hay bale. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go straight down the pipe with a grenade, try and get the grenade over the hay bale. And if anybody pops up, I had cross cover. Um, So halfway through my sprint, (laughs) full dead sprint with my grenade, with my pin pulled at at the hay bale, the guys pop up behind the hay bale and the uh, sniper engages, goes through them. You know, the, uh, remember the backpacks you see guys wear with the RPG rockets Uh on the back, right? It looks like the Star Wars guy. Right, right, Boba Fett. 
sniper round went straight through the guy and must have ignited the propellant on one of the rockets because he looked like a, a sparkler. <laughs> like a rocket man. <laughs> like a sparkler coming out of his back <laughs> just as he got hit. Um, I got up close enough to the... So you did throw it? Bill. Oh, yeah. yeah. I wasn't <laughs> skinning that thing. Not going to put that... <laughs> nope, nope. It was going elsewhere, away from me. Yeah. Um, got over the hay bale, took care of them, and just, yeah, kind of a, kind of a crazy, crazy night because of how sporadic and diverse the whole gunfight became and, and where did jimmy take his round in the leg and uh did you did you fight through at that like at that point or is he doing self-aid or what's how what's uh going they had eliminated their threats yeah. in, in their initial contact um one of the snipers with me was also a medic so he had to make movement over they tourniqueted put a tourniquet on right away um it's a phenomenal photo photo of jimmy sitting in the helo uh, it's floating around on the internet. Yeah. I know. I think it's in his book too. Uh -huh. But uh, he's sitting there in the helo, tourniquet on, bloody leg, and he's sitting there sucking on lollipop. his sitting all lollipop. Yeah. So, man. Yeah. That's yeah, crazy. That and was... did you see? Did you see him when you get back after that, or is he no, off? He's so and off to Germany, gone, right? Anybody gets hurt that bad, right? They're in the main cash, and then they're off. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see Jimmy again for three months, four months. Mm -hmm. so we got back from deployment. And you take over for you take over for him? Yeah. Yeah. So then boom. That night I became team leader of the team. Everybody moves up one. Dang. And go back to work the next day. Wow. Jeez. Was that the craziest or that that I, so now you're now you're team leader. What changes at this point? Like you're so far so well prepared at, at this point for, for anything that comes your way. What's uh, all we'd done. Yeah. So this is all I did for yeah. Right? Since I got through training, that's it. There was no, I didn't do anything else but this. That right. was everything we did. So, um, so yeah, okay, now I'm a team leader. Responsibilities change a little bit because I'm team leader, but ultimately we're doing same thing. Same stuff. Nice. Same stuff. Yeah. And then you get back from that one. At what point do you find out that uh, something might be a little fishy with old Bo Bergdahl? Are you continuing to, to track in this deployment? Yeah, we got intel to... reporting that he was he had been moved across the border several weeks, a week yeah. after our our op where Jimmy got hit. Yeah. Like, okay, he's across the border. He's, you know, the Iconis. Yeah. He's over there. We don't know where. That's on him. Yeah. Uh, that's when we start hearing a little more reporting that he'd walked off his base, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, but again, at that point, right? There's so much stuff coming down the pipeline. There's there's always 10 targets on your list of go things to do. Yeah. So, so you're not like not man. a lot of free time to be like, well, let's go spend some time thinking about Bo Bergdahl tonight. Yeah. No, let's I don't have the free time yeah. or the luxury to, to stress about him. Got it. So nobody's thinking, uh, this guy, you know, Jimmy got hit because this guy walks off his base. Like, yeah. Well, that's the other thing, right? At, at at our level, at the unit I was at, right? We're very political. Right. Mm. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about Captain Phillips stuff, right? Yeah, There's yeah. a lot of stuff that that we were used for mm. that um, I don't know, hindsight, perspective, you start getting high enough in rank and you're into planning these things and just perspective starts to shift a little bit on some of these ops. Yeah. The risk versus reward. Right. Um start asking a little more questions. It's not just about, hey, I'm really happy to do my job. I'm like, well, wh why are we targeting this guy? Uh, What's the upside? What's the downside? Let's let's articulate the risks versus reward of targeting this guy. Okay. Let's be a little smarter about this. Why, yeah, why are we risking human life, right? That's that's when a lot of our tactics started changing, right? Uh, we used to do the the hostage rescue combat clear or hostage rescue clearances, crash yeah. the room, run in. That was slowing down, right? It was combat clearance, mm -hmm. not hostage rescue. So a lot of those things were evolving. Yeah, which is interesting because police officers have been doing combat clearance, you know, on their own with a big mag light and you know a Smith and Wesson revolver uh, for the since the beginning of time, essentially, right. or since you know since they had flashlights and and uh, and more modern revolvers. But you know, clearing some house in a city where they get a call, there's some sort of a disturbance. Yeah. With they're by two, themselves, with or they're by or they're two of them. Not with an assault team of thirty dudes. They're not kicking in and like you know yeah. doing that, but they knew enough, yep. you know, to do that sort of thing. So it's really cool to see how. Uh, well, that was a fight. Uh, to that do was that. a fight to get our some of our senior level guys to understand that we could do combat clearance almost as fast, mm -hmm. much safer, take more accurate shots from behind cover and concealment mm -hmm. than barging in a room and you know. Oh yeah. Face to face, and I've had plenty of those, those debates. And those yeah. are not. 
Right? I don't know. Yeah, those are. I'd much rather take a shot from the doorway than run in the room, be three feet from you, and have to duke it out that way. Don't rush to your death. That's it. And I remember those when all that stuff started changing, and you guys started developing those tactics. And I was very lucky that my platoon got invited over there uh, to do some do do that, and we got to you know run the house and get lessons from you guys and uh, and get pretty good at, yeah. at doing that that sort of thing. Uh, but that that was yeah that was amazing. I think that saved uh, saved a lot of lives actually. Um, and what at some point in here, when do ROE start affecting you guys or uh, how political are night raids versus call outs versus, you know, when, when do you start feeling that at the tactical level, when you start feeling those Nine, strategic levels? Yeah. Really start creeping in, right? The, you know, they wanted to take the dogs off the battlefield, right? Our dogs were yeah. invaluable, saving our lives. They saved your life that night, right? With uh, multiple with times yeah. the dogs have saved my life, our team's life. These dogs are invaluable. The enemy would say, oh, well, they're unclean and, you know, complain. And all of a sudden it's coming down from our leadership that we shouldn't bring dogs on missions. Now it's, hey, you've got to partner with your Afghan partner force. Now it's a lot of these new things are starting to change. The rules of engagement are changing. Now it's, right, we called ourselves NCIS Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. Because CSI. Right, as, the, yeah. as the supply rep, I went and bought everybody a digital camera. Right, not not a new knife or you know some new explosive or grenade. I got everybody a digital camera. Oh yeah, everybody in the squadron had a nice camera, so we could take all the photos and, and oh. all that came with it. CSI Ramadi, I remember it yep. very well. Yep, it became uh, all if, those shooter you, statements. You had your bad guy, you brought him back, and if you didn't have all the stuff to actually prosecute them with, they weren't going to do anything. They'd catch and release them, catch and release. Them. This is why I get so upset with senior level leaders, and why I've been giving uh, them such a, a hard time with whatever platform I have today, because they got manipulated by an enemy who learned who they didn't respect, because they immediately acquiesced to no dogs on the battlefield because they're dirty. Why do you think they're saying that so they get the dogs off working. the battlefield they want you to take the action right. that you're taking uh, it's like that sort of stuff I just did the, is the insane tactical questioning right and i can remember there was a period of time where we'd bring our our guys back that we'd rolled up on the target known bad guy etc we, we spent a million dollars to go roll this guy up right helos fuel everything we spent Lives, that night to, yeah. go, to go get this guy uh -huh. we get him we bring him back and when I turn them over to the interrogators, their first question oh, to yeah. him was, were you abused? Yep. Right now, if, if the bad guy that we just rolled up, who barely speaks English, says, yes, I was abused. And this am, is an army person or somebody, right? Yeah, army, Marine, whatever, whoever we turn them over to at the mm -hmm. detention facility, they would ask that question. And if the bad guy said, yes, I'm not innocent until proven guilty. I'm, I'm guilty until proven innocent based off the word of a bad guy. Yeah, people like to talk about this enemy as, uh, you know, stuck in the seventh century, that sort of a thing. Okay, fine. Guess what they did to the best and the brightest of the United States military and uh, elected officials. They manipulated us to the extent that the first question our own military asks is, were you abused? Yep. Or, hey, well, let's get these dogs off because it's being, it's, uh, yeah, how many lives did they save last year? Okay, fine. But you know what? Our enemy is saying that they're, they're dirty when they go in the houses and we have to respect what they're right. saying. You're just getting manipulated. Yep. Like, it's it. crazy. Uh, and then we have um, some, some things change. And I, you know, it's tough when you're looking at these, uh, these counterinsurgency strategies and the whole whatever else. But all of a sudden, night raids and air assets and all the rest of it and now call outs so you're well, calling yeah, somebody out with an asbest. Don't go at night when you have the best chance of surviving. Yeah. Why would you or do that? that? How about all these, uh, how these go during the nods. day with no dogs yeah. and take all your technology away because you've never lost a gunfight at night with your technology but let's let's even the playing field to make it more fair. Exploit all technical and tactical advantages and then they take those away and you know I can see some maybe you know having a call out in the tool Kit, whatever, fine. But now, okay, now we're letting everyone know we're there and they're letting them strap on a vest and we're letting them come out and we're, now we're adapting our tactics to be far enough away, standoff-wise, uh, with, uh, with these guys coming out with S-Vests. And oh, guess what? Not just guys, but females coming out in S-Vests uh, as well. Like, to get a little bit closer, yep. constant game of adaptation. And at the strategic level, they knew exactly how to manipulate our senior level leadership. And those senior level leaders let themselves get manipulated. And guess who it affected? Not those guys, you. No, the guys the, the guys on the ground risking it. And and unfortunately, maybe fortunately, right? I was, I was able to see that. And mm -hmm. I think that was part of the reason I ended up deciding to get out of the military, right? Mm -hmm. Was, hey, I 
done this. I'd sacrificed everything I'd sacrificed, deployed every time, raised my hand the first time they needed to volunteer for 13 straight years. But I saw more and more of these decisions being made and I had to sit back and be like, okay, wait a second. I'm choosing to risk my life, put myself in these positions and they're not even smart positions. They're forcing me into stupid positions. I'm okay dealing with the risk. I'm all about the risk. I'm fine. Quantify the risk, put some, put some pieces in to mitigate that risk mm. and then go knock your socks off. That's your standard assault. But when your own leadership is making it more risky for you for no reason, that can be articulated. Yeah. I sat back and I knew I had an enlistment coming up. I'm like, why is this smart for me to sign on the dotted line again to sign up for another four years yeah. for this leadership? And especially at the point I'd I'd done everything I had in my career. I'd you had a couple good uh, wins under the belt at that point. But uh, but a lot of that what you're describing is that trust, you know, that trust up and down the chain of command. And as a team leader, or for me as a, uh, uh, as, a as an officer or a junior officer, or whatever. But it, working at the tactical level, like those people that you're working with, your right and left, you have to have that trust. That's the most important part. And then you have to have trust in that senior level leadership, and they have to have trust trust in you. That gives you that freedom of maneuver on the battlefield, so they're not micromanaging your every every move. But uh, they did not do a good job in fostering that trust up the chain with some of their decisions. Like we trust them to make the good strategic level decisions and the good operational level decisions when we're talking about some of those things that affect our tactics sure. in Hill, and they did not, right. they did not do that. Well, it became something where you, right, this war had gone on long enough, right? If you were a senior level enough officer, you knew you needed certain things to make general level. And it wasn't to buck the system. It wasn't to open your mouth. It was to write yourself up for certain heroic awards and talk about all your personal achievements and set yourself up for that star rather than saying, hey, with all due respect, this, this, this isn't working. And I have a great example of that. And thankfully, my master chief was there and, and spoke up. We did a deployment to Afghanistan. Congressional delegation comes over. Right, got the colonel and all the, the high-ranking folks there, and all the rules of engagement had started to change, and this congressional delegation was saying, hey, are these rules of engagement making it more dangerous for you on the ground? The colonel stood up, gave the politically correct answer, of, oh, absolutely not, we're working oh, around geez. it, blah, 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 and every enlisted guy in the room sitting there like, well, that's a bunch of horseshit. Mm -hmm. um, and my master chief raised his hand, he's like, well, with all due respect, sir, Congressman, I believe this and just lays it out. And so I, I believe they, right, they, they get it sometimes, but a lot of times these delegations come around and they're only presented to the people who are going to tell them what they want to hear rather than somebody who's actually speaking the truth mm -hmm. so they can then make decisions off of those hard facts. They were just fed, hey, it's really shiny. Everything's going great here. You know, move along. Great. They don't need to make any changes. They just keep going as Yep. As and is, do the same thing we've always done. And people don't even need that that uh, experience with a CODEL, with a congressional delegation. Any E1, E2, E3, O1, O2, O3 can be at an outstation in Afghanistan, be at a forward operating base somewhere or whatever, uh, and then turn on the TV and see a general in front of Congress saying things like, we're, we're, we're making progress. Our partners are, are hitting their milestones. Uh, I just need a little more resources, a little more troops, a little mm -hmm. more funding. And you can go back and you can play those things same type, same generals, I mean, different person, right. same uniform, saying the exact same things sure. in 2003, 2006, 2010, 2015, Name 2017. one of those generals who got promoted by saying, nope, we're doing it wrong. Oh. We've got this wrong. We need to shift fire. We need to do, no, it's, it's never about owning yeah. a mistake and well, shifting fire. That's why it takes 20 years to correct from a whole bad decisions in Afghanistan. And I'll give you the opposite, is that the one general who said something that is, uh, things aren't going so well. Guess what happens to him a little while later? <laughs> Done. It was the first relief for, uh, they didn't even specify what it was, why they took him out of there, why Robert Gates took him out of there. Um, but that's... That's why, and that hadn't Honesty? happened for, yeah, exactly. Uh, that hadn't happened since Truman did it to MacArthur in the Korean War. And guess what that also does? That reinforces to every other general or colonel, oh, I, look what happened to so-and-so. Yeah. Guess where he's not going don't to that next star. Yeah. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go in there and I'm going to say that this is, things are moving forward. We're progressing. But what's crazy, there's a new uh, book coming out, the Afghanistan Papers or the Washington Post 
has all access to these these interviews and to these the Donald Rumsfeld's Feld's, um, uh, snowflakes that he used to, to send out, and he juxtaposes these things that they the people being interviewed uh, thought were going to remain classified and juxtaposes that with their public statements in front of Congress. Here's the exact time they said this privately. Here's what they're saying to the Americans. So they're lying to the American people. They're lying to Congress. And most importantly, they are lying to their troops. And they probably all made they're another They're failing. Star. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and now look what we have. Uh, now look how we just left Afghanistan. So it's, uh, it's, so, it's so frustrating to see that. But point being, like, you didn't need to be operating at your level to see that. Like, yeah. any E3 Marine standing guard, you know, doing the job out there is, can turn on TV and see the general saying these things in front of Congress and then can look to his left and see the, the partner force that he's training and be like, this isn't adding up. Yep. You know, and you're losing that trust between that E3 and that general. You just completely right. lost and, and trust. Think about that trust, right? The term trust can't be understated in a combat setting, warfare setting. Right? It's hard enough to trust somebody at the post office, grocery store, whatever, in the civilian world. Now you've got to trust somebody who's going to send you into harm's way and possibly get you killed. Mm-hmm. That, that's a deep level of trust. Or you've got to be able to block all that nonsense out and say, okay, I realize there's a whole bunch of good idea fairies yep. up there. They're not making the decisions I would make. I'm not in their position. I, I, I chose to be an enlisted guy. I chose to stay as an enlisted guy and do what I could on the ground, right? Never once did I want to be a politician or, or an officer in those ranks. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's why I stayed where I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried very hard not to get sucked into the emotion of these bad decisions. I tried to focus on, okay, what are the decisions, the tactical level decisions yep. on the ground that I can affect to keep yep. my team as safe as possible? Because that's all I can affect in this space. Outside of that, I, I have no control over any of this. I'm, yep. I'm E8. <laughs> I signed up to be here. Yeah, that control what you can control. Yep. And because otherwise you're wasting bandwidth, worried about things that you can't. Yep. And at that tactical level, those guys to your right and left are trusting you and counting on you to make good decisions under fire. Uh, and you owe it to them and their families uh, and to the mission. Yeah. And I think that's why, right, the, the, the emotional response to what we're seeing in Afghanistan right now is, is so much deeper through, through people who actually served there. Mm-hmm. And when I say served, I mean yep. served, yep. right? Not just sat on the fob or, or the general who, who ran it. The guys who were very emotional about this were the people who lost a ton of friends and blood, sweat, and tears. Oh, yeah. Doing and then their what families. they asked us to do. And then imagine the families who lost sons, daughters, the brothers For and what? sisters who lost siblings, uh, that sort of thing. So it's not, yeah, it's not just that person that was there. It's their immediate family as well. So it's uh, or not even just immediate, their extended family as well and friends as well. So, uh, yeah, there's, and I, and I totally get it. But, um, yeah, interesting that you say, talk about, when we're talking about the dogs and we're talking about manipulation, it didn't oftentimes even need to come from the enemy. Um, uh, there's got uh, Sean Parnell is running for Congress in Pennsylvania right now. I had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He has a book called Outlaw Platoon. And he was, you know, college kid, raises his hand, gets up. All of a sudden, he's a 10th Mountain Division, you know, second lieutenant, first lieutenant in uh, on some outstation on the Pakistani border. And uh, they're just getting hammered, right? Um, and they're going out and they're leaving base and they are getting hammered and they're fighting and they're adapting. Uh, they're losing guys. Um, it, and it's it's chaos, like every day, in daylight, you know, all, all you know, it's just, just chaos. So they leave to go do a patrol for, uh, I think it was like seven days or something like that, whatever it is, three days, whatever. Um, and they have these dogs, just like we do everywhere we go, who do we have? JDAM, Trigger, you know, whatever right. else. We have dogs that are part of the family that aren't, aren't necessarily our military working right. dogs, um, but they're there. They're part of the family. They're around the fire pit, you know, whatever. A postal person, they used to do the ring routes, remember the ring routes yeah. uh, for resupply? So Somebody came in and uh, she was delivering some mail and a dog barked, barked at her and she went back and complained about it. These guys leave base, they come back, all their dogs were euthanized. They killed the dogs and burned their bodies. Wow. And they were devastating. American forces came and did this to the American while they were While the yeah. platoon was out, so they couldn't do anything about it. Those guys came back. There's your leadership for Devastated. It. Sure. Because, yeah. So oftentimes we do it to ourselves. Sorry, that just that, that oh. angered me when I heard that story. That I had a story. pet monkey. I Did you? Pet, every Where? Afghanistan tour, I had a pet monkey. Are you serious? Until the pet monkey, like, it always pee on everything. <laughs> and they would come visit. And then it, like, bit some agency chick one time. Oh. 
They were like, uh, all right, everybody get rid of the monkeys. Oh, that is crazy. The monkeys have rabies. I don't Where know. did the monkey live? In a little cage. In a cage? Like in Afghanistan, you're like, somebody build a cage, get the monkey, you the pet monkey at his office. That is hilarious. Oh, man. Uh, and then the dogs also, I remember, more than, more than one occasion, um, bringing those dogs back, which was cool. Um, and some of the regular units couldn't do that, but I remember doing the, uh, like the paperwork where all of a sudden they became military working dogs. Right. And here's some paperwork and here's a signature and here's a, uh, here's a crate and guess who's coming home? A stray dog, J-Dam, who became right. our mascot while we were cool. over here. Yeah, so that was, that was pretty cool that uh, we got to do those, those sorts of things. Um, yeah, but uh, they're probably gonna get, they're gonna come after me now. Yeah, I said yeah, that, right, you now, said that? Yeah, exactly, big time. The, the problem was is what, 2010, 11, that was all when you could see the writing on the wall, right? Like, you had to be blind not to see the way the Afghan war was being fought, the politics included in it, you name it. And it was just, it was something you could see and, and you knew was, or at least in my, my heart at that time, I didn't see any positive end in sight. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. That was part two in a special four-part series with my dear friend, Mark Owen titled The Head of the Snake, Killing Osama Bin Laden. If you haven't picked up his first book, No Easy Day, be sure and pick that one up. Second book, No Hero, get that one as well. And tune in to part three, where we talk about the mission to capture or kill Osama Bin Laden. Till the next time, take care, stay safe, keep fighting.